0: Hello and welcome to the Dyson House podcast by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I am Tom Ackhurst, and I am your host. Well, it seems that almost every day we're reading in the papers of growing Chinese influence in Australia and fresh reasons to be concerned about the Asian nation's changing role in our neighbourhood. Andrew Hastie, a Liberal MP who now heads the Parliament's Intelligence Committee, recently warned that our failure to properly consider the rise of China and the consequences of its influence in Australia bears similarities to Europe's failure to prevent the rise of Nazi Germany. Definitely sensational claims at face value, but it's a sentiment that's been echoed by US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who was in Australia in August and declared that the time is right for fresh joint US-Australia efforts to meet the security challenges posed by Beijing. Despite this indication of continuing US investment in the Asia-Pacific, prominent defence analyst Hugh White's new book, How to Defend Australia, has forecast a declining US role and presses the need for Australia to develop an independent security capability, one that would be able to combat a potential security challenge from China. So today we're going to take a closer look at the Australia-China relationship and particularly as it relates to Australia's national security in the Asian century. I'm very fortunate to be joined by one of Australia's preeminent national security experts, Dr. Ewan Graham. He's executive director of La Trobe Asia and a former director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program. Thanks for joining me Ewan.
1: You're welcome Tom, nice to be with you.
0: So we've willingly subjected ourselves to American hegemony in Asia since World War II. What is it about the prospect of Chinese hegemony and influence in Australia that has us worried where the American influence didn't?
1: Well Australia is often known as the lucky country and um, not for no reason. It has had a consistent ally, leading maritime power of the day which started with um, Britain until the abrupt disjuncture of the fall of Singapore in 1942 and then since then there was uh, more or less a seamless passing of the baton to the United States as the preeminent sea power. But of course those preeminent sea powers were also on friendly terms with Australia Uh, and linked Australia into a global trading system. So um, Australia's uh, had a a very high level of security, and really, um, apart from that uh, single crisis moment of the Second World War in in 1942, very little in direct security threats to worry about. Um, So I think that that's the obvious um, framing which creates the sense of unease and anxiety that now uh, Australia is moving into a very different uh, climate in which the leading trading partner, still not the leading investment partner, but nonetheless the leading trading partner, China, uh, is an authoritarian state uh, at loggerheads with um, Australia's ally, which is um, rightly or wrongly perceived to be in decline the United States.
0: Well, let's take a closer look at this rising China, which has been buoyed for the last few decades by some form of what President Xi Jinping articulates today as the China dream. And that's a national platform that has united the country around China's collective rights, its international prestige and claim to regional authority in Asia. But this is a policy that loggerheads with the individual freedom common to us Westerners and those freedoms that Chinese people are gaining unprecedented exposure to today. Do you think the Chinese Communist Party can hold on to the obedience of the Chinese people and continue in China's economic growth to rival America as a great power in Asia?
1: Well, that's a very big question to try and answer, but let me come at it this way. I think implicit in that framing is that exponential growth is a straight line projection. Um, We've fallen foul of that prediction many times in the past. China has um, many potential crises ahead of it, economic, uh, environmental, political too. I don't think the Chinese Communist Party, however, is going to go away. Uh, whatever hurdles it faces, I think China's rise is going to be a continuing feature. It's really a question of, of how that rise um, impacts on the on the region, and there are contending narratives about how to do that. Um, Hugh White is among those who advocate uh, some form of accommodation to Bring China in uh, and to provide it with, if you like, some sort of glide path that will prevent a uh, a great power conflict from developing between the United States uh, and China. And that's, I think, what uh, is uppermost in uh, in the fears uh, that also I see um, informing Australian government policy increasingly is the framing that U.S. China competition is the single biggest source of insecurity rather than China itself. I think that that is understandable but maybe a problematic formulation because uh, once I think the idea of competition itself becomes uh, seen as the primary strategic risk, then there is uh, an inherent linkage to the US-Australia alliance as itself a form of instability that we might get pulled into uh, a confrontation between the United States uh, and China. I think Australia also needs to look at uh, its relationship with China on its own terms. Australia is not used to doing that. One of the problems, I think, in this long continuity of having had a sea power maritime ally all the way since European settlement is that Australia hasn't generally had to look at security through an independent lens. It's done it through the lens of its alliance. And like any looking through any lens, that can distort the view. Uh, in some ways, I think Australia's China debate is a reflection of its, of its America debate. Uh, and the, the idea that China, um, to those who are, I think, on the positive end of the spectrum, often see that as a kind of proxy for an independent foreign policy debate, uh, an independent self-reliant posture that Australia has never fully exercised.
0: Okay, well, we'll touch on the tension between our relationship with America and our relationship with China a bit later, but going back to the um, economic aspect of our relationship with China, Trade Minister Simon Birmingham has just been in Beijing for talks on the 16-nation regional comprehensive economic partnership, and he's been plugging the benefits of the Australia-China economic relationship. But efforts to exclude China from the Trans-Pacific Partnership And concerns over the Belt and Road Initiative, which some have claimed Beijing are using as a debt trap for nations in the Asia Pacific, indicate some fears around partnering with the China economy into the future. Nearly one third of Australian exports by value are sold to China. Is this a window for further economic prosperity in Australia or is it a security challenge?
1: So one of the reasons I think many people in Australia have a positive view towards China is the very obvious one that uh, a- alone amongst the OECD countries, Australia has escaped a recession uh, in a generation. And that's largely on the back of a- an unprecedented commodities boom that was fueled, uh, not exclusively but largely by Chinese demand. That's also, if you like, less complicated economic relationship than Europe or the United States has with China because we're essentially dealing with the sale of, of commodities. And that is a, you know, it's a point-to-point transaction. It requires less trust, for example, than if you're dealing with uh, high levels of intellectual property around um, sale of technology. And that's what's partly, I think, shifted the, the opinion in Europe and the United States business community towards a more suspicious view of China as they found uh, their intellectual property has been uh, illegally appropriated. I think the emphasis on trade is also at danger of being outsized. Trade is a large part of what has fueled uh, Australia's prosperity, but we shouldn't forget the importance of investment. And in investment, we see a rather different story in recent years. China's uh, level of investment has increased, but uh, I think for the last year, at least, the United States has been the largest single source of new investment coming in. And if you like, from an international relations point of view, trade is, is um, much less trust-dependent than investment, because investment is long-term, it's where you put your money, and there's a lot more um, that that ties countries together on that basis than with uh, point-to-point transactions involving commodities. Um, There are other elements, of course, to the relationship. Uh, Australia um, provides education service exports. So I work in a a university, um, like the front line of that, that uh, that's been a major um, boon to the Australian economy, Uh, the fact that you have uh, very large numbers, I think about 600,000 students from the mainland prc uh, currently studying in uh, in australia and of course uh, all of the flow on effects to that uh, have been uh, substantial Um, but it's not exclusively a a relationship with with china i think the uh, challenge for the government is to try and find ways that on solely on economic grounds let alone security grounds the risks that come with that high level of dependence uh, are obvious. You put all of your economic eggs in the basket, the one basket, then uh, you run a risk uh, that uh, um, when that demand goes slack, um, you'll feel the, the the economic pressure directly. So there is, I think, an important um, economic argument for diversifying as far as possible. There are limits to how far that can be done, doing business with Indonesia and India is is not easy, um, but I think uh, we have to do what we can to try and make sure that uh, um, we're not uh, solely reliant on a, on a single source of um, demand, which uh, in the education sector, I- in commodities, in other areas, I think um, the good days are probably behind us as far as straight-line growth extrapolations in China. China, I think, will inevitably feel feel the consequences uh, of a cooling economy, uh, and for that matter, the trade dispute ongoing with the United States.
0: Well, we've been happy to ride on China's economic growth for some time now, despite an awareness of those negative strategic challenges that come with that relationship. So I'm wondering, is it only the lens of our American alliance, and in that sense, the impeding confrontation between China and America that has forced us to reevaluate our economic relationship with China.
1: I don't think it has to be only around the framing to do with um, the United States. Um, I think the downsides of over reliance on a single market are very clear. They're clear, for example, in the education sector, given the uh, events in University of Queensland, where um, in the last few weeks, where I think it's been um, very graphically demonstrated that uh, unless provisions are made for students to have the safety and freedom to express themselves uh, in, a, in accordance with a, you know, a values in a democratic country, that there, there is a, a potential for blowback um, if the commercial relationship uh, is allowed to, to dominate to the, to the point where free speech is imperiled. And that can be felt overtly, it can be felt in more subtle ways uh, if, uh, if people start to censor themselves and anticipate um, what might cause offence to China. I think that's probably the more insidious and likely threat. I don't think Australia's um, democratic status is remotely in danger, but there is a kind of broader question over the long term about who influences who more. And the predominant uh, viewpoint for the last few decades was that China was going to be persuaded to become more like us, more Mm -hmm. liberal in nature, and that that would inevitably follow uh, a policy of engagement. Now, I think that really has to be scrutinized uh, in a much more hard way, whether who's doing the influence over whom, and over the long term, um, whether uh, we run the risk of being conditioned to accept so-called core interests uh, that are central uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. And that's important to stress that we're not talking about China the country or China the culture, uh, but it is, unfortunately, um, dominated to a very large extent by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which uh, effectively has a stranglehold on on China's um, interests.
0: In this Asian century, with a a powerful China that's rivaling America's stranglehold in the region. How substantially does that change Australia's strategic interests from a security standpoint?
1: I think the idea that the United States is in some irreversible tailspin and um, is on the verge of withdrawing from the Western Pacific and becoming more isolationist in nature uh, is way overblown. The US um, is losing its moment of primacy. I think that was uh, always an anomaly uh, for the last two decades since the end of the Cold War, up until some indeterminate point in the last five years. I think that primacy ruled, but um, it was always a rather strange state of affairs, not one that really bears comparison even to the Cold War period in Asia, where the US had military supremacy in Asia, but it was still a very contested space The U.S. um, got bogged down, um, lost a a war in Vietnam, drew one in Korea, uh, and um, very often found itself, I think, its hegemony uh, uh, sharply challenged. I think we're moving back to a a paradigm in which uh, there is no clear uh, primacy uh, either for China or for the United States. Uh, Multipolarity is going to increasingly define the Indo-Pacific balance. Uh, United States, even though it's no longer um, the you know, preeminent uh, military power, will still have I- enormous uh, resources at its disposal and interests that impel it to remain engaged and present uh, in East Asia. Um, and I think the, the prospect of Australia, India, Japan, and the other democratic uh, and maritime states of, uh, of Asia holding um, a, a balance of power uh, that, that will um, uh, regulate relations with China into the long term uh, is very unlikely without the resources of the United States. For all its unpredictability and for all of the madness that currently defines headlines in Washington, uh, and that's understandable given the, uh, the, some of the uh, eccentricities around US um, uh, foreign policy at the moment, particularly in the trade space where um, Washington is frankly being extremely unhelpful in uh, mounting a wrecking ball to some of those institutions that have underpinned uh, prosperity in in the Pacific for for so many decades. Uh, But I think the United States, for all that, still remains an indispensable ally, just on balance of power grounds
0: alone. Where are the data points that for you indicate a continuing American investment in uh, in the region. Considering the, the Trump presidency, which not, not just speaking to the individual, but as Hugh White writes himself, it's about the changing political realities in America that are increasingly isolationist. Where are the data points that for you indicate America remains an ally that can provide at least a significant security guarantee in going into the future for Australia?
1: I think people are right to be concerned around the state of America's alliances, um, given that uh, the US president himself is a a professed skeptic on the value of alliances. And this is always a region that has demanded a very high level of reassurance. Uh, And now it's facing a very different narrative from Washington that uh, um, burden sharing will will be uh, demanded in in ever more shrill terms, uh, and that um, trade Uh, is not something that they can expect leadership from Washington on, uh, far more likely that uh, US preference is going to be to deal bilaterally. That's the downside, but um, there is still a very important continuity underlying the US uh, presence in in East Asia, Uh, and that presence has a military element. Um, The so-called first island chain with Japan uh, and uh, Australia as its northern and southern anchors remains in place. Um, I think the challenge for the United States going forward uh, is to try and multilateralize those alliance alliances as far as possible. I think Washington is, is feeling the downside of, of having pursued a so-called hubs and spokes uh, model for its alliances in, in the Pacific in contrast to NATO. NATO, for all of the, the friction between Europe and America, Uh, is still better able to hold its own because it's committed to a collective uh, self-defense model in a way that the Asian alliances are not. And of course, for a a country like um, China that is uh, eager to um, take bite-sized chunks out of the status quo, that's made it rather easy to play one ally off against another. We have uh, a very troublesome, uh, bitter political dispute now between South Korea and Japan, two key U.S. Northeast Asian allies. That I think really illustrates the uh, the problem that the U.S. has uh, in in not um, presenting a, a united front. And as the United that suited the United States when its relative power was stronger, uh, but now uh, Washington I think can't afford to rely only on power. Um, it will never be able to match uh, China um, dollar for dollar, yuan for yuan, or, or submarine for submarine, it has to be a value proposition that attracts countries in Asia. At the moment, we're going through a phase and it may last several years longer um, as part of the sort of anti-globalisation backlash that we're seeing playing out everywhere in the West.
0: Do America's traditional allies in Asia have continuing confidence that they can rely on America to provide an effective strategic counterweight against China, or is there a growing concern amongst those nations, that they need to be more accommodating to China. Political confidence in the
1: United States um, is at a low point for the obvious reason that the narrative coming out of the White House is frequently uh, contradicts that of the uh, professional diplomats and um, officials in State Department and Department of Defense. Uh, this has always been a region that's demanded very high levels of reassurance from, from Washington. Uh, and at the moment, the leadership is certainly absent in the economic sphere. In the security sphere, it's a rather different story. We do see continuing investments uh, in the US presence, including the reported uh, um, intention to build a military port in uh, north of Darwin um, by the United States. And I think uh, the investment that's coming from the United States in the long term uh, will still be significant. There are important strategic reasons that the United States will never want to see the other side of the pond, however big the pond may be, dominated by uh, another hegemon. Uh, that, I think, is the underlying strategic motivation that will keep the United States engaged. But you asked about the allies, and I think this there is a glass half full to this uh, angst as well as a glass half empty. that glass half full as it asks a serious question that's never really been answered for countries like australia and japan uh, and um, south korea that have all to varying extents been prepared to free ride to some extent on u.s uh, security commitments to the region and now um, it it's beholden on them to get their act together to work with each other if necessary to spend more on their defense Um, so that that burden is equitably distributed. For all of the shrill rhetoric from President Trump, one area where I think he's been absolutely right is to point out that double standard of uh, the Allies, really across the world, including the Europeans. In Western countries, have by and large had cheap security on a fairly low-risk basis Apart from the entanglements in the Middle East, which have been controversial, countries like Australia have not really had to do um, a great deal in their own regional areas in, in Asia, where it counts, uh, until recently. So I think um, there's also kind of a, a, an adjustment that needs to happen.
0: Uh, mm. That the, the good times are, are, are over. So would a partnership between Australia and some of those regional allies you spoke about, Japan, um, South Korea, Malaysia, and even Indonesia, would that be a sufficient match to the growing might of China? Or does Australia, as Hugh White has suggested, need to do more to develop its own individual capabilities? Well, there are two separate questions there.
1: One is around whether the, the Asian powers collectively can um, balance China. I don't think they can. Uh, I think the United States will remain indispensable to that uh, calculation. And China's power for all of the challenges that it faces uh, is of a very different order and dimension to anything that we've seen uh, certainly uh, in the last um, half century if not longer uh, in Asia it's bigger than the Soviet Union uh, ever was in economic terms and of course most of its capabilities and intentions will be focused on on this region Uh, so the United States also has to uh, overcome the tyranny of of distance to, to remain um, present in, in this part of the world. But I think uh, it certainly a lot more can be done, even if those countries can't collectively uh, match China. Uh, they can certainly do a lot, I think, to uh, make life easier for themselves by not being picked off one by one, to present a united front, one that doesn't, uh, that, that is consistent with a common threat denominator, Um, And we've seen inklings of that with the rise of trilateral dialogues. Uh, Japan and Australia have probably the closest security relationship of any two Asian allies. Um, A lot of focus is on India. I think the interest in the Indo-Pacific as a framing concept in large part owes to the desire to try and get India more involved in in East Asian security. Um, I think there are challenges that will prevent that from happening any time soon, but India still do an awful lot uh, really where its power is concentrated in the Indian Ocean uh, and it has a land border with China um, uh, moreover uh, and its economic clout will only become stronger as its uh, as its growth continues um, India will soon be the most populous country overtaking China itself so there are there are a lot of options
0: um, but that, that second question which is about Considering that reality, does Australia need to do more to develop its own individual
1: capabilities? Here's, I think, the biggest um, problematic part in in Hugh White's thesis. I think it's a uh, very big stretch to imagine that that Australia can be truly autonomous in defence in a way that would hold a major power uh, at bay. But let's say even if it can, that still puts Australia in a very problematic position. If we are uh, defending alone uh, against a major Asian power without friends and allies in the region to depend upon, and the balance of economic power uh, in the region has already shifted to a China-centric model, I think Australia's ability to uh, hold out under those circumstances um, through economic coercion alone. Would be very difficult. The balances that are going to shape uh, Australia's uh, prosperity in the future are not going to be decided in the South Pacific. Uh, they're more likely to be uh, decided really where the major centres of, of economic uh, activity and population are uh, around the, uh, the periphery, the, the maritime periphery that stretches across the Indo Pacific. Uh, that can't be done on military grounds alone. there has to be a, uh, a lot of diplomatic stitch work. We're still at a fairly early stage uh, in this and I think that um, for example, a lot of the uh, interest in the in the so-called quadrilateral grouping India, Australia, Japan and the United States um, hasn't met expectations because the, th- the threat perceptions of the four countries remain. Um, very different Uh, but if China uh, does uh, flex its muscles in a in a more overt way uh, then I think there's uh, that will have a a reinforcing effect on uh, on trilateral quadrilateral and other ad hoc groupings Um, but still I think to do it without the United States and in in just plain material terms is going to be very difficult. Australia um, if it can defend itself I think that's a problematic challenge on several grounds. One of the most important is that there's a heavy emphasis in Hugh White's book on territorial defense, uh, and that's sometimes characterized as a Fortress Australia approach. Well, um, the fortress also needs a water supply. Uh, Australia exists uh, in a a trading system, uh, and it's not just trade, it will be crucially dependent on uh, external sources of, of supply for fuel, uh, for spare parts, for, uh, for, for re- reinforcement, um, for all of the associated technology. Um, whether Australia can actually hold all that onshore, I think, is, uh, is problematic, which begs another question, whether actually there is, if you like, another agenda behind Hugh, Wa- Hugh White's proposition that mm. maybe this is all too hard. The sensible thing to do would be to reach a diplomatic accommodation uh, with China as the rising power that doesn't put us in that invidious position Mm. uh, down the
0: track. If the two relationships came into conflict, would Australia support America or China, or could it continue to balance those relationships as we have for the past few decades?
1: I think having a, a, a diplomatic middle line is very different to trying to maintain a neutral position under crisis conditions where you only have one military ally, uh, I think that's not sustainable. If it was a serious crisis uh, and the United States were shedding blood in the Western Pacific, um, it would be extremely difficult and unrealistic to expect that Australia would for long be able to,
0: to stay out of that. Hugh White suggests that our primary threat is in the maritime perimeter and that in order to respond to that threat most effectively, we should somewhat concentrate our our investment and our spend in those maritime denial capabilities. Is that an appropriate strategy for Australia?
1: Uh, I can't um, dismiss Hugh's analysis. Uh, it is, in some important respects, uh, a sound and uh, prudent source of advice that the... the, the trends in military technology and balance of power uh, are favoring the defense over the offense, uh, and that maritime power projection, old-school style, uh, is going to be increasingly difficult against countries like China that are able to push out the threat envelope of long-range precision missiles and other ways of keeping... Uh, navies and air forces uh, at bay. Um, so Hugh White advocates an extreme version of the denial approach based largely around a force of between 24 and 36 submarines uh, and uh, doubled the size of the combat uh, aircraft fleet that Australia would uh, would operate in the expectation that that will be enough to create a, a counter-denial envelope uh, taking advantage of Australia's island geography to thwart any direct threat to uh, to Australian territory. I think one question that obviously ac- will occur to people from that is that um, you can't rely on your notional adversary to follow the plan um, and that uh, China has uh, excelled in asking questions about credibility of allies below the level of conflict very skillfully Uh, and if we are in a position let's say 20 or 30 years down the track as Hugh predicts the United States uh, is no longer credible or present in the Western Pacific for Australia to rely upon I think it's going to be a lot easier for China to use other coercive levers rather than sending a grand invasion fleet Australia's Mm -hmm. way uh, to make life difficult and to bring Australia to terms um, either through a, a blockade or cyber attacks or some combination of those kinds of, in, uh, of less apocalyptic. Um, which
0: coalition. actually leads into my next question, which is that would it be a mistake to invest heavily in today's technology considering that pace of change, robotics, artificial intelligence that may render today's capabilities redundant? I
1: think the submarine is probably a a safe bet, not because the submarine will act today uh, in the same way in in 20 years' time, but I think it can be a means to project power that's still going to be very difficult to detect. But I think other aspects of of, um, the force structure that are outlined do have a rather old-fashioned feel about them, that it does go beyond platforms, uh, that it's the reliance on the networking technology in defense that increasingly decides how lethal and effective a defense force is. So your, your deterrent capability is not hanging so much on the numbers of platforms. Numbers, of course, have a quality all of its own, but the reliance on networking system of systems type technology uh, means that it's going to be, I think, very difficult for Australia to have a truly o- autonomous defense in the future. Um, Let's take the, the joint strike fighter that Hugh has advocated. Australia buys. Uh, how does Australia maintain a, a autonomy for that capability if it's dependent on the United States and other partners for regular um, upgrades uh, and uh, and spare parts? I think the idea that it could be these could all be um, stored and secured and brought in under a crisis or wartime conditions in a way that Australia could dictate uh, is unrealistic. That's unfortunate. I mean, a country would like to be independent and self-reliant as far as possible. But I think the the technology uh, has changed things in a way that makes a coalition-based approach not just politically desirable approach, but one that is inescapable in the technological dependence that, that it foists on us.
0: So given the complexities of Australia's strategic interests, changing strategic interests in the Asian century, uncertainties around our relationship with America, is it worth considering the development of nuclear weapons capabilities in Australia, given that we made the decision to abandon those capabilities over 50 years ago when we signed the, nuclear, the non-nuclear proliferation treaty? Is it a conversation worth having today?
1: The conversation's already started, um, and it's one of those things that periodically uh, comes out of the shadows in Australia, uh, never really seems to get traction, but you're aware that it is there as, a, uh, as an option. And the more that, um, that Australia feels uh, insecure about its alliance and insecure about China's strategic motivations, the more likely that question's going to insinuate itself uh, with more regularity and, and greater strength. Um, it's also a very unpopular option for obvious reasons. Uh, nuclear weapons are um, horrific in their effects, uh, exorbitant in the expense required to develop them and run counter to Australia's existing policies, as you pointed out, on non-proliferation and arms control. So I think if it were to happen, Australia would be very unlikely to be the first proliferator, far more likely, it would be at the downward end of a a long chain of proliferation, probably that starts in Northeast Asia with South Korea or Japan uh, turning nuclear. We'd be in a very different world. But that world um, could come to pass, and we have to think, um, as defense planners, I want to point out, in worst case terms. uh, And if the United States is not an ally that Australia can rely upon in the future, um, then the nuclear option is one obvious way to, to um, I- equal the, uh, uh, the odds with a, a, a much greater superior conventional capability uh, on the part of, uh, uh, of China, uh, which is, of course, a nuclear power itself and could use the mere th- threat of nuclear weapons to uh, coerce uh, an, a, an Australia that doesn't have uh, extended nuclear deterrence guarantees Uh, In place. Um, But I think nuclear weapons are also uh, limited in what they can offer in terms of security. They uh, offer uh, a guarantee against the existential security questions, uh, invasion uh, or nuclear threats that are used um, by other countries. But they don't offer security against uh, the lower order um, threats. We've seen a uh, a clear demonstration of that with the UK as a nuclear power uh, that had to fight the Falklands war uh, conventionally against Argentina. Uh, Those nuclear weapons did not deter Argentina from invading the Falklands and they were not helpful in restoring um, British control over the islands that had to be done through a conventional invasion. So I think the idea that nuclear weapons wave a magic wand take care of one's security and then that you can start to um, uh, run down your conventional defences that will come back to uh, bite you very, very quickly. Um, It's not an either-or proposition and it's something that I think uh, given the, the, the huge economic and political and moral costs that come with nuclear weapons should only be done as a very last case scenario. But it does take a long time to develop those capabilities, therefore the conversation needs to be out there in public at what point we do start to take that development line seriously. Um, because it may be a, a 10 or 15 uh, year delay between taking the decision and having a, a, a deployed capability.
0: How would Australia pursuing the nuclear option play into China's ability to kind of go against the the rules-based order we've relied on in Asia for our security and stability.
1: I think Australia would be very unlikely to take the nuclear option unless it uh, it really had no other alternative. We'd be living in a much darker, more threatening world uh, in which Australia would face an existential security question of the kind that currently it does not. And I think the... Uh, the risk of, about um, boosting the legitimacy of uh, of, of China's uh, approach would really wouldn't apply. Um, China is an existing nuclear power, and it's one that has the legitimacy legitimacy of being a permanent five um, securi- UN Security Council member. So, in that sense, um, you know, China uh, doesn't view its. Uh, nuclear weapons as, as illegitimate, um, and they do have a seal of legitimacy uh, from that point of view. Um, China has also been, I think, careful not to use nuclear threats uh, to surrounding um, powers, so there would have to be, I think, a, a wholesale deterioration uh, in China's behavior uh, that would bring us to that point. Um, there are also many other risks attached, huge costs, moral Economic, political, and the attached risk that an Australian nuclear weapon could itself unleash a chain of onward proliferation in Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia would obviously have to look at its options very carefully.
0: Okay, well, thanks for coming in today, Ewan. That was certainly a fascinating conversation, and it's left me with many things to think about. Great pleasure. You're welcome, Tom.